Selling a business. Where do we start, right? The business of selling businesses isn't simple. It takes a combination of things. You need the right people with the right know-how. And when you have that, you need to find a buyer. But what does it mean to have the right people with the right know-how? What do they know? More importantly, what do you want them to know? I'm your host, Randall Sylvie. Welcome to Deal Closers, a tech and internet M&A discussion. The people at WebsiteClosers.com value their clients, and the client pool runs deep. There are a plethora of businesses out there, and with that comes business owners looking to sell. It's up to people like Jason and Ron at WebsiteClosers.com to find buyers. But before the handshakes and signed deals are done, there's a lot of work that's put in beforehand. For one, not everyone and every business can be taken on as a client. Clients are selected. And like I said before, there's a lot of owners out there looking to sell. Jason and Ron break it down for us. With these kinds of companies, they'll go to their mastermind group or their Facebook group and kind of talk to some people about what their experiences have been with us, which is why we are putting a lot of video testimonials on our new website that we're launching here really soon, because we think that that's going to be, you know, not only informative, but really helpful for people to understand what it's like sort of working with us, what the process is like, etc. People do find us on the web, you know, either organically or through, you know, paid search. They find us on Facebook. We've got over 350,000 followers on Facebook. So people follow our deals. They see that we launch deals. If not every day, every other day, we're launching a new deal. And we also have quite a few intermediaries around the world. And, you know, these guys broker deals, you know, sometimes they're, they're holding 20 to 30 deals at a time. And so, you know, you got to remember that each one of those that close, you know, they're going to want to refer business over to us because they had a good experience and they actually had a closing. And that's one of the problems with mergers and acquisitions in general is that, you know, there are some people out there that just can't close deals. They're in the space, you know, they can, they can engage with a client, but actually closing a deal sometimes is beyond them. And so that, that's why we call ourselves closers. And I think that, that is why we receive so many referrals you know, throughout the world. And with so many referrals, you have to wonder, how do they narrow it down? What kind of information do potential clients provide to peak interest? It depends on the type of company. But for the most part, what we're looking at at the beginning is, you know, let, let's get their URL so we can kind of dive into their company and get a little more information about, you know, the website and, and get a feel for if it's a product or if it's a service, what it is that they're selling. And then, you know, financials are the next big step. We need to understand where the company has been, how old they are, you know, what the financials look like. Do we need to go and maybe get the financials market ready? which we have resources to do that. And, you know, a lot of these guys, regardless of deal size, uh, you know, they'll, they'll do their deal, they'll, they'll do their financials on Excel spreadsheets because that's what they're the most comfortable with. But that's not what the marketplace wants to see. You know, they want to see a full set of books from an accountant on a, on a software system they know like QuickBooks or Xero or, you know, something like that. And so we're asking a lot of times we're intaking financial documents, tax returns, you know, anything they've got so far so that we can kind of dissect how the business is trending. We look at things like, uh, do you have just a few products that are representing all of the sales of your company? Do you have recurring revenue, subscription revenue? What does that look like? What does the lifetime value of your company look like? We're, we're kind of looking at all these things at the very beginning 
so that you know we can start setting expectations with our client from the beginning because as you can imagine when they come in to talk to us at the beginning they want to know what their company's worth i mean that's why they're getting on a call that's why they're dealing with you know a long conversation with us they want to know what is my business worth by the time i get up that call i should have some semblance of an idea of what i can get at market yeah and that seller call is critical because we need to establish our bona fides and our knowledge and allow the seller to trust us as well as the other side too we need to trust them feel comfortable with them and you know, want to represent their company. When it comes to representing things, you want to know what you're getting into. It's the same when representing clients. You want to know who you're dealing with. And when you've been in the business of dealing businesses as long as they have, you know what to look out for. What are some red flags that you look for when talking with potential clients? Maybe verbal claims that don't match the paperwork that they send us later would be certainly one of them that would jump to the top. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think one of the things we find often is that, you know, you've got someone who's very creative, who has the ability to grow and build a company and a team. But when it comes to the financial piece, they're not rock stars. You know, it's very rare that you'll find someone that's a really strong financial accounting mind that's also built a company. I mean, those are two different sides of your brain, just as very rare. So a lot of times they'll believe, you know, that they're doing a certain thing, but the reality is far different. And so sometimes we have to be the ones to break that to them. And you got to be really careful with how you do that. I wouldn't necessarily call that a red flag, but certainly, you know, just because someone tells you that they're doing 5 million in earnings, you got to really dig in and see, okay, well, what, what are you, how are you defining earnings? Is that EBITDA? Is that adjusted EBITDA? Is it taxable income? Is it discretionary earnings? Is it accrual or cash-based? And, you know, when you really start diving in and making them understand, you know, what their company is really making, that can be a kind of an eye-opener for a lot of them. So it is, again, not necessarily a red flag, but it's certainly for a lot of these guys on that initial call, a lot of them will look at things like cash flow as an example. Like I know that I started this month out with 100000 in the cash account and I ended up with $120,000. So I know I'm making money. Well, that's not really the way it works, right? I mean, you got to kind of dig in and you need gap style accounting. And that's what the marketplace wants to see. And so just going back, I mean, again, it's, it's an eye opener for a lot of these guys because a lot of them haven't been through this process before. They don't know what to expect. And it's really important that you kind of explain the whole process to them about why the financials are so important. You can't just say, hey, I need financials. It, doesn't, it does not work that way. You're not going to be a good broker in this space if you just say, send me financials. You got to say, okay, how are you doing your financials? Who's doing them for you? Are you an accountant or do you have an accounting mind or can we help you? Can we talk to your accountant? Can we, you know, can we be a part of that process to really dig in and help, you know, make sure that those records are the way they're supposed to be? You know, like Ron said, I think one big red flag would be as an example if someone came in and said, well, you know, we've got $4 million of, of revenue and, you know, we make $2 million. Well, that's, you know, quote unquote, make <laughs> $2 million. First of all, a 50% net margin doesn't really exist. For some very slight companies, that is possible. But for the most part, it's very, very difficult to get yourself to a 50% nap margin. So right then and there, you hear something that either one, they're confused about what the word make means, and that's okay. You know, you got to kind of walk them through how the marketplace thinks they make something versus how they feel like they make something. And then you got to walk them through the difference between cash flow and profit. And we actually call the difference there ghost profit. Because when you sell a company, you sell it on an accrual basis. 
the cost of goods sold around on an accrual basis versus what you're actually making in the company, which is more attuned to cash flow, especially if you're a high growth company and you've got a lot of you know, additional cash going into inventory and those kinds of things. So not necessarily a red flag. You know, we tend to, you know, err on the side of caution when we're listening to people, but we also believe that they're all being honest with us at the very beginning. And a lot of times it's just confusion and they're trying to, you know, provide us the answers and sometimes they don't fully understand what it is and that's okay. Again, you've got the creative side versus you know, the side that is financial and accounting. And most of these guys don't have in-house CFOs or controllers or any of that thing. A lot of it's sort of outside accountants and so forth that are helping them. Until you get to the $100 million mark, that tends to be the case. As an example on this particular issue, we had one client that came to us saying that he was pulling 100000 a month out of his company. And when we dug into the numbers, we discovered that he had drawn close to a million dollars on his Amazon line of credit. And so, sure, he was pulling 100000 a month out, but uh, it was borrowed money he was pulling out. So though he was telling us the truth, it didn't reflect the accuracy of his uh, P&L and cash flow and financial statements. Knowing what to look for helps find clients they can be excited about. So on the flip side of that, when it comes to a potential client, you guys generally select the cream of the crop. What does the ideal client look like? I hate to always begin my answers with it. Be, it, it depends, but no, yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course yeah. <laughs> it, it it really does depend on you know on the situation. But I, I think it would be you know those where the buyers are going to be the most interested in the company. As an example, if somebody comes in and they've got four million dollars of discretionary earnings and it's a high repeat customer base, long lifetime value, it's the kind of product or service that you know, maybe it's got some barriers to entry or it's not very competitive. And, you know, just overall, when you, when you kind of touch on all the things that you look at for the valuation of a company, if it hits all those things, we love them. Or, you know, as an example, maybe somebody's driving a lot of traffic to their site through Instagram and they've got all kinds of people out there and influencers pushing and driving traffic to them. Well, that means you've kind of brought this audience onto your brand and that makes a big difference as well. And so when you start comparing that with, say, someone who's just maybe they're only doing $100,000 in earnings and it's a highly competitive space and everybody else is selling, they're just kind of brand slapping, you know, we can sell that too. But the ones that Ron and I work on are going to be the really super exciting ones that everybody wants. We can represent them all. But uh, you know, just to answer your question specifically, if it hits all those points and it's high growth and you know, it's sort of in that sector that everyone's looking for, you know, we can't wait to represent those. We have a blast on those. And talking about a perfect client, of course, clean records are a big part of it. You know, we'd love to see that. And if they're not clean, we will send them to somebody who will clean them up and make sure they're entirely accurate before we represent them. But other things do make a difference, such as sometimes they they don't interview well. So you'll have, you know, a potential buyer and sometimes his entire team on there and they'll be asking questions and, you know, you have a really good company, but the person answering the questions just doesn't come across as very knowledgeable, very smart, very, you know, and they are. And so a lot of times, you know, the perfect client is what we create, not necessarily who came to us because we'll work with them and we'll help him with, you know, his responses and how to respond and, you know, pretty much everything from A to Z. And it should be noted, this firm does work with a lot of e-commerce businesses, but that's not all. The web is their playing field, and any kind of online business 
can be a potential client. Yeah, yeah. Basically, anything that's in the digital space and, and some things that you might even consider, quote unquote, brick and mortar, which that's how we kind of separate what we do as a boutique firm versus, you know, what a lot of other business brokerages out there do. You know, your, your guy on the corner that you kind of go to to sell your restaurant or whatever, they tend to be brick and mortar, you know, convenience stores and those kinds of things. And they tend to have to sell within a certain radius around them. You know, if you're selling a convenience store where you're not picking up the convenience store and moving it, your buyer needs to be in that area. So for us, you know, the way we differentiate is, first of all, it needs to be, you know, tech enabled or IP or iOS or, you know, a software company, e-commerce. It could be, you know, an internet company that, you know, represents or provides subscription services for people. There's a lot of different ways people find to make money using the internet or using technology. We also represent a lot of patent portfolios. We represent a lot of premium domains. Now, we tend to be very picky about the domains we choose to put out there, but the really high premium ones, we represent those as well. So anything digital, we really like. Now, we have a company we're getting ready to launch on Monday that we're really excited about. It has two brands. One is a female beauty brand and the other is a male grooming brand. And in addition to that, they actually manufacture their own products. And we just know, having been in this business for so long, how highly coveted that business is going to be because, first of all, they're not concentrated all in one brand. They have two brands plus they manufacture. So they're going to have amazing margins. And the manufacturing is also scalable because they're a contract manufacturer for like, you know, 20 other brands that are also in the same space. So they're buying these, you know, large bulk drums of product that allow them to sell not only their product at a pretty high margin rate, but they're also, you know, getting product for other people because of their own sales as well as their own volume as well. And so everything becomes sort of an economies of scale play in a business like that. So we're we're very bullish on that one. We know it's going to do very, very well. And you know, that's an example of something that has a brick and mortar element to it. You know, that that buyer probably needs to leave the business in place where it's located, but that buyer can be anywhere in the world. And it's definitely a digital company. You know, they've got 15 employees and they probably all need to stay right there, but it's a digital company. So you can't say we differentiate because, you know, they have a building or anything like that. It really doesn't come down to that. It's more about, you know, if it's digital in nature, if it tends to provide services or products in a digital way, you know, we're going to represent that. And, and also all of the software and tools people use to service those people that also do those things. So as an example, you know, people that sell e-commerce products, well, there are lots and lots of companies out there that service those e-commerce companies, third parties that, you know, help them, either API tools or, you know, maybe they help, you know, provide data feeds back and forth to Merchant Center or an API interaction with Amazon so that they can, you know, as an example, it might be, like I was saying with Zero, it might be a third party that you can actually put all of your records together so that you can, you know, kind of visualize how you're doing from a gross margin standpoint, how each of your ASINs are doing on the Amazon platform. All of those tools and third parties that are out there, we represent all of those guys. So it's very broad. You know, we don't like to, we like to differentiate ourselves from brick and mortar, but we don't like to pigeonhole ourselves and, and say that we can't represent one particular category versus another. Yeah, we, we love SaaS companies, digital advertising, mobile gaming. As a matter of fact, recently we did a deal where we had a Canadian mobile gaming company that uh, was acquired by a publicly traded Japanese company. 
you know, one of the companies we have under contract right now is a uh, mastermind group, which is business services. So we, we really handle everything from A to Z. Yeah. And you want to talk about a difficult business to sell. I mean, that basically that mastermind group is a professional services company where you've got, you know, basically two guys that started this company. They've got a lot of followers now, a lot of members in their group where they had the experience of selling on the Amazon platform and they used to, you know, put events together, lots of webinars and content. Plus they used to take people to China all these things that they were doing, and now we need to sell that to someone and put them in a position to be successful after they close. Not just sell the company, but make sure that they're going to be successful as well. And so as you can imagine, anytime you're selling something that has professional services to it, it can be difficult. But you know, that's a very, you know, very particular niche kind of company that someone found a way to make a very good living at that someone wants to buy, and we're under contract for that. So it's very broad, very open, the kinds of companies that we sell. Okay, yeah, that kind of feeds right into the next question that I had was, if you found some industries are harder to evaluate than others? Well, from an evaluation standpoint, we have a pretty good idea, having done thousands of these, where they're going to fall from a market analysis standpoint. In other words, when a buyer comes in and looks at it, we know what they're going to value it at. It's going to be within a standard deviation. However, that isn't the issue. The issue is 100% the seller and his or her expectations for that, for that business. Obviously, it's a really important part of the process. You have to understand what the expectations are of your client. And you know, some clients will come in and say, hey, you know, I, I want to sell pretty quickly. Tell me what the reasonable value is and let's just go right in the middle of that range. I'm good to go. But that's kind of rare. You know, more guys want to go aggressive and we're okay with that. We like being aggressive and that's how we differentiate ourselves from a lot of others that are in the space is that we like to focus on going as, as high as we possibly can. That's why we're changing the whole branding of our company to being a, a warrior, to battling, to get the highest number. So we're okay with that, but it's important that you understand the expectations of your client. It's not so much about what the buyer wants to pay, although that's what gets the deal done, but it's more about is the seller going to be okay and happy with a particular value. And that can be wide-ranging. You know, There's a lot of data out on the internet, plus people talk to each other. And so there's no you know, book you can buy that says this is exactly what this company is going to be valued at. And the truth is there is no one value for any company. It's always going to be in the eyes of the beholder. It's always going to be a range. You know? And that's why when you go and you get an appraisal for a company, it's either up or down from you know, the price that it's being sold at. It's never going to be, we find it to be worth exactly this number because it just can't be. It doesn't make any sense to peg a company at a particular number. So we provide ranges to our clients and we say, hey, you know, this is the low end, this is the high end. If we're within this bell curve somewhere, we think we'll do very well. But if you want to be more aggressive, we're okay with that. Let's talk about what that looks like. Sometimes we need to maybe wait a little while until the company turns a corner and gets themselves to a discretionary earnings number that's going to get them where they need to be. Or sometimes we need to be a little more creative with how we take the business to market. And all of that goes into what we do as a boutique firm to help our clients maximize their value. And so, you know, that, again, a huge differentiation point to somebody just when, when they come in just saying, hey, you know, we can sell this between three and a half and four times. And there you go. That's not how we work. We don't want to sell companies where people want us to work that way either. We want to sell companies where people are coming in saying, hey, let's be aggressive. Let's not be crazy. Let's be reasonable, but let's be aggressive and sell this at a high number. 
Yeah, and one thing that's been really awesome is that over the years, we've been exposed to all these different sectors in the digital world. And so we could really cite chapter and verse as to why every sector has a specific value and each company within those sectors are different and, you know, why one is worth more than another. So, you know, just with the raw exposure we've had with these literally thousands of companies, you know, we've gotten a pretty good understanding of everything out there. Having all this experience helps when it comes to evaluating companies. Remember, it's clients that seek the firm's help to sell, not the other way around. Keeping that in mind, most clients don't have the knowledge that members at the firm have. They have the know-how of the market and know what buyers want to see. They are the accounting minds of the operation. As a result, it's not only their jobs to get buyers, but also help clients get a realistic understanding of the process. Where might an evaluation get complicated or become difficult? That's an interesting question. So I can foresee a lot of different ways that you know, evaluation might get difficult. It's going to start with the seller expectations for sure. You know, what we talked about before, because a seller, you know, would have talked to other people, they would have done their own research online, and they would have seen that, you know, there are certain companies going for certain multiples. And unfortunately, a lot of the data that's out there that people see is publicly traded information. You know, so if a unicorn went out onto the stock market and got a 20 times of top line multiple, you know, they think that their company is worth 20 times of top line and they do the same thing. So why isn't it worth it? So you kind of got to talk them off of that. And, you know, it, it's a fine line because if that's their expectation, you have to, you know, sort of understand and, and trust that there's a reason why they feel it's worth that and really listen a lot, you know, listen to the client and try to figure out where they're coming with that. And if it's just because they saw it online, well, you know, here's four to 10 examples of other companies that are in your same space that have sold and we can show you in our database and here's where they sold and why they sold at those numbers. From a valuation standpoint, that's, again, always the most difficult part is making sure that you match the market with what the seller wants. And you're not always going to get there, so you just kind of you got to fill your way through it. And sometimes you're going to go to market at above market multiple expectations. But, you know, sometimes you can work out a deal and you only need one buyer, right? I mean, you don't need 40 buyers for a company. And so if there is someone willing to pay more, you know, that's a different story. And plus, there's businesses that we put out, out on the market that we know a strategic buyer is going to buy and not a financial buyer. And what we mean by that is for a strategic buyer, the assets that we're selling are more valuable to them because of what they already do, either as a bolt-on or additional service offerings or maybe the, the traffic that's coming in because of that business. That traffic might be really valuable to that other buyer, it's not necessarily in a financial sense because, you know, if the company is only doing, say, a million dollars in earnings, but it could be worth $20 million to the buyer because of the money that they can make on their side through that traffic. And so we kind of also have to work through that. And if that's the expectation of the client, we have to put it in those terms when we take it to market. And so that's the difference between a financial and a strategic buyer. And obviously, a lot of clients that come to us say, well, you know, I want a strategic buyer, you know, but, but that isn't always good either because strategic buyers, usually you have to go out and get them. They're not sitting there waiting to buy a company. You have to go to them and say, hey, we have a, a company that would really like to sell to you. Would you be interested in looking at it? And as you can imagine, when you do that, they're not ready for that. They might be interested, 
but you know, most companies have to go and they need to talk to their board. They need to talk to the committee. They may be doing other M&A at the moment. They may not be financially ready for it. They may not have the investor backing, et cetera. And so all that means that there could be a lot of time that goes into that particular buyer looking at that particular company. But we have sold companies before and represented companies before where there's only one buyer. You know, they come to us and say, well, you know, the first thing we ask them is, who do you think is the best buyer for your company? And a lot of times it's one company that, you know, would have the most interest. And so we need to try to work directly with that company on a strategic basis to make that work. And we're fine with doing that, of course. But I would say those are the minority situations, but they do happen. But, you know, to answer your question on issues with valuation, it's not necessarily an issue. It's more about understanding the expectations of your client, understanding the business really well, and then representing that out in the marketplace the way it should be represented. Again, either from a financial standpoint or a strategic standpoint, and not just trying to pigeonhole a company and not listening to the client, because that's very frustrating from them. They've spent all this time building this company. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears goes into it. This is their baby. This is their whole life. You know, Obviously, they want to maximize and they don't want some broker to tell them, well, I can get you three times what you did in earnings for last year. <laughs> you know, that's not interesting to anybody. In their minds, they're thinking, well, I'll just keep running the company. And, you know, that's not interesting at all. It's definitely an art. You have to be creative with how you go to market and you have to listen to your clients. Listen, listen, listen. Yeah. And sometimes also when it comes to complications, they come from banks a lot. Because so many of these deals have to be underwritten by a bank. And as an example, let's say somebody comes to us and they have several different entities and they're only selling one of them. And suddenly, you know, it becomes pretty complicated because you have to break out the P&L from that particular company. So, you know, that evaluation could be pretty difficult. Tax returns always can make evaluations difficult if they wrote off things that, you know, you can't tell if they're legitimate addbacks or not. One other item, too, might be inventory issues, because a lot of these guys have, you know, many, many SKUs and they're growing so fast and suddenly several of their products will really take off and they run out. So we work a lot from projections. And if those projections suddenly go sideways because they don't have the inventory to sell, then, you know, it doesn't mean that the projections are wrong. It just creates a, a complication for the evaluation that we came up with. At the end of the day, it's business. But Jason and Ron understand that there are people behind the businesses they're selling. All the numbers, values, and metrics matter, but so do the people those figures are about. So when it comes to evaluating businesses, they consider the numbers and good old intuition. There are companies out there that, you know, tote themselves as, you know, valuation companies. But, you know, a lot of times what you'll see they do is they, they work kind of from a book and you know, give you sort of a basic outline. Again, we go back to this financial versus strategic. You know, they're going to give you a financial answer and a financial review. But we do things in a much different way because we're also owner-operators of tech companies. We look deep into the company itself to try to find you know, opportunities that we can, you know, whether it's in the financials themselves or it's in the operations. We go in and we try to provide a valuation based on what we think we can max out that company in the marketplace. And that's different from, you know, a standard valuation company that's just looking at a book, you know, they've got their little software that they use, they send out a 400 page document that, you know, gives them this beautiful document that tells them exactly what their company is worth. 
But that isn't reality. The reality is that you've got to go and you've got to talk to buyers. You've got to then handhold that buyer in front of investors and lending partners and you know anybody that's going to be back in this deal. And you need to really understand this company well because you're the one that's going to be talking to all those investors and bankers and people in the background to get this deal done. Getting a deal done isn't you know looking at a book and checking a box about evaluation. So much of what we do is that we value these companies on feel and gut and experience and our own database of having sold these companies. And that's a much different scenario. And so I guess my advice there would be that, you know, if you're looking to sell a company, you got to talk to a broker and hopefully someone that's in your space and understands it well, whether it's us or it's anybody else, it's got to be someone who has sold these in the past that understands the business model and that will really dig in with you and try to fully understand what it is you do. And once you do that, then you can better answer the question as to, you know, what are some comparables out there? Why are you better or worse than those comparables? You know, and every single business is different. There is no business out there. And again, we've sold thousands of them. There is no two businesses that are alike. And so from a valuation standpoint, that's why I just don't understand how you can go and try to do some kind of an automated valuation through a company. It just doesn't work that way. You have to be out there selling it because you have to understand what the banks are doing too. I mean, that's a whole scenario by itself is understanding whether a bank is even willing to underwrite that particular kind of deal. And if they are, what are they looking for? And who's the buyer going to be? And every buyer is going to do differently in front of a bank as it relates to the exact same company. So you just, you can't get it from a book. You can't get it from checking boxes. You got to do the hard work in every one of these deals and actually dig in. Thanks to Jason and Ron for taking the time to talk to me. Feel free to send us any questions you have about mergers and acquisitions. We'd be happy to explore the answers. Till next time, this has been Deal Closers.